No book in all the New Testament is more God-drenched than the book of Revelation. And in no place is that more true, more evident than Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5. The emphasis is on God and his throne. How we need to keep that ever before our eyes every day of our lives. If we could just keep God and his throne and the lamb before our eyes. I know Jeff is going to keep God and his throne and the lamb before our eyes this very hour. Preach the word, brother. A very solemn charge. Paul said to Timothy, I charge you with all solemnity, preach the word. We believe that the Bible is God's holy word. And it's God's intention to draw people closer to him. God created us in his image, in his likeness. But he wants us to be closer to him and he wants us to be more like him. And so the call for those of us who proclaim the word of God is to not just give um, information that is um, helpful in daily life, even though that's important. It's not to report news, but it is to help people's lives be better so that we can all be drawn closer to God. The book of Revelation, in the minds of many people, is a difficult book. I've heard a lot of people say, I don't really like the book of Revelation. I don't want to study it because it's difficult to understand. It'll help us if we get a, some thoughts from the introduction that John wrote in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where he tells us that this book, verses 1 through 4, is written to the seven churches of Asia. He names those churches. It would help us if we understood that this book is written in language that was According to verse 1, signified, the King James Bible says. Some of the other translations say communicated. The, the Greek word there uh, means to show by signs. And so there's something about the book that was written so that people who are Christians who knew Christ could understand it, and maybe those who were not could not. It helps us to understand the book of Revelation if we uh, could come to grips with the idea that John said this is about things that must shortly take place. Chapter 1, verse 4. And he said it again in chapter 22, the time is at hand. And so it was written in an imminent fashion because these people were under great distress and great, uh, great duress. Some of them had seen their loved ones put to death and, and maybe they're in prison by the Roman ruler. Whether you believe the book was written during the days of Nero or Domitian or Titus or some other Roman despot, they were out to get the Christians. And maybe they were afraid that they might lose their life tomorrow. Maybe they had seen a, a husband or a wife or a child or a loved one put to death. And they were concerned that they would also be put to death. And I would suggest to you that it would bring great comfort to them if they knew that they were going to receive a letter from Jesus. And John says that this is written, these letters are from Jesus. 
In verse uh, 9, verse 8 and 9, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, verse 9. In verse 8, he tells us that he was on the island of Patmos. And we'll talk about Patmos at length in the Bible study hour. But he says he was there because of the Word of God or for, for the Word of God. There might be a, a little difference in the nuance of the word because and for. But however you want to look at it, John was there because of his great passion for the Word of God. Either he was arrested and sent there, as we would say he was exiled there, or God sent him there to receive the Word. For whatever reason, he was there because of his passion and love for the Word of God. And all of God's people need to have that same love and that same passion. John tells us that in Revelation chapter 1 that he heard a voice, a voice that sounded like a trumpet. I can only imagine what that must have been like to hear the voice of, of Jesus that John heard on that occasion. A voice that sounded like a trumpet. And John said, I think in about verse 12 of chapter 1, that I turned to see the voice that I'd heard. I think that's interesting. He didn't say, I turned to hear the voice. I turned to see the voice. And then in verses 13 and following of chapter 1, John gives us a beautiful description of Jesus. And in the middle of that description, in about verse 15... John, after he is describing Christ, uh, he talks about his eyes and he talks about his hair and he talks about the robe that he had, a, a golden sash around his chest. In verse 15, he says he has feet like fine brass as if they had been burned in a furnace. Or your Bible might say like uh, burnished bronze. They have been made to glow in a fire. It's my conviction that it, that is an Old Testament reference. Brother Johnny Ramsey said that there are more than 200 Old Testament references throughout the book of Revelation. And so that's another way we help have a greater understanding of what the book is all about. But John is giving us a description of Jesus, and he talks about his eyes and his hair and the, the robe that he's wearing and the, the belt around him, and he talks about his feet. You recall the Old Testament account of the book of Daniel of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three teenage Hebrew children who were told by Nebuchadnezzar that they had to bow down and worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar had made. They said, we're not going to do that. We only worship God. And Nebuchadnezzar said, if you don't bow down, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And they said, we don't care what you're going to do, we're going to worship God. And Nebuchadnezzar said, if you don't bow down, I'm going to give you one more chance. And if you don't bow down, I'm going to put you in that furnace and you're going to die. And their words were, and these are words that all of us need to learn to live by, uh, we believe that our God will deliver us. We don't know whether He will or not, but we believe that He will. And even if He doesn't, we're going to worship God anyway. Wouldn't that be wonderful if that was the heart and the attitude of every child of God? We don't know that God is always going to work things out the way that we want them. We don't know that He's going to take care of us the way that we want them. Um, many people who are here this morning have gone through experiences in your life and things didn't turn out the way that you wanted them. Maybe you went through a marriage that didn't turn out the way that you wanted it. Maybe you've had some health concerns that they didn't turn out the way that you wanted them. When my wife was sick with cancer, she suffered with cancer off and on for 25 years on three different occasions. She was very sick. Most of that time she had a good health and was able to, to live a good life. But the last time she got cancer, it began to spread throughout her body. And we prayed fervently that God would take that cancer away and that she would be able to live longer. We had been together nearly 40 years and we didn't think that was long enough. She wanted to see her grandchildren grow up. I wanted to see her be a grandmother. We prayed fervently that God would take that cancer away. Ladies and gentlemen, we believe that God took the cancer away. She no longer suffers. 
but she's not with us anymore. It didn't turn out exactly the way that we wanted it to turn out. But we still believe that God is in charge and we're going to worship God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said we're going to worship God. So you know what Nebuchadnezzar did. The book of Daniel tells us that he told his minions to throw them in the fire. And he made the fire seven times, I think the text says, hotter than it had been before. And it was so hot that it killed some of the men who threw them in the fire. I don't know everything that they did before they threw them in the fire, but apparently, based upon what happens next, they bound them up, maybe with some rope. Uh, some have suggested they put them in some kind of sacks like burlap bags or, or uh, so, something like that, and they bound them with these ropes, and they threw them in the fire, three young men. And later on, uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes back, and he no doubt is ready to open the door and see them lying there uh, burned to death. And Nebuchadnezzar, after he opens the door, do you recall what he said? He said, I don't see three men who are bound, but I see four and they're up walking around. Imagine that picture. I see four and they're up walking around. And then Nebuchadnezzar says something I'll never forget. He said, and one is like a son of God. Now, I don't know that Nebuchadnezzar had any concept really of who God was or what God was like other than what he had heard from people like Daniel and these three Hebrew children and other people. But he said there was one like a son of God. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar wasn't thinking about the God that created us at all. Maybe he was thinking about one of his gods and, and he believed that maybe they could perform some kind of miracle and, and he could send his son there to protect him. I don't think Nebuchadnezzar had any inclination in his heart or in his mind that this would have been Jesus Christ. And I know I can't prove that this morning, and I, I want you to know I'm not going to go out and try to start some new church on it or anything like that, but I hope if you disagree with this, we can get along anyway. I believe that was Jesus Christ in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And whether that's true or not, it gives me great comfort, because when I read Revelation 1, verse 15, and the text says that he had feet like fine brass or burnished bronze that had been, made to, that had been burned in a furnace... And if Jesus Christ walked through the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he can walk with us through whatever we're going through in our life. And maybe you're going through something that is extremely difficult in your life this morning. And you need to know that because Christ can walk through the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that he can walk with you. And sometimes we feel like that we're in the middle of the fire and Satan has turned up the heat seven times hotter than it's been before. But we know that Jesus can walk with us. And so he has feet like fine brass. And then after that, he gives us more information after the description of Christ. And he reminds us of who Christ is. But two key verses in chapter 1 that help us understand the rest of the book. In verse 11, uh, John is told by Jesus, the voice that he had heard, to write the things that you see and send them to the seven churches of Asia. And this is where Jesus names the seven churches of Asia, beginning in Ephesus that we talked about last night. And so he said, write these things, write the things that you see and send them to the seven churches. If you go down to Revelation 1 verse 19, the text says, write uh, the things that, uh, that have been and the things that are and the things that will be later on, write them in a book. And so two times in chapter 1, Jesus tells John to write what you see and put it in a book. And so apparently the rest of the book of Revelation is going to be about things that John sees. I don't know all about how it occurred, but John said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And if you open your Bible to Revelation chapter 4 this morning, you'll notice, first of all, chapters 2 and 3 contains the actual letters to the seven churches. And then John says in verse 4, after these things, or chapter 4, verse 1, 
After these things, after what things? After receiving the letters to the seven churches, after seeing the, the vision of Christ or seeing the image of Christ, I don't know if it was a vision or an image, and I don't know all of the things that John is about to tell us in chapter 4 and 5, if it's a vision or images, or if John perhaps was allowed to enter heaven itself. And again, that would be left up for discussion. But John says, after these things, I looked and behold, or when some Bibles say, I looked and I saw. Well, why is that significant? Because John was told twice in chapter 1 by Jesus to write what you see. And so John is telling us, he's making it very clear to us, this is what I saw. I saw a door standing open in heaven. The first thing that John sees after receiving the letters, when he is somehow transported through a vision or through a dream or literally himself uh, to heaven, he sees a door that is standing open. Now remember, these churches of Asia are under great persecution in great duress and they've seen their loved ones put to death and maybe they think they're going to be put to death tomorrow and they get a letter from listen to these words they get a letter from the closest friend that Jesus had while he was on the earth you ever thought about that John was the closest friend that Jesus had and he wrote he writes this letter and he says to John deliver it to the churches and they get this letter and the first thing that John says I was told to write what I see, and the first thing I see is a door that is open in heaven. Wouldn't that be a marvelous picture if you were a Christian under duress during that day? You know, they couldn't get to the Roman government. They had no access to the throne. They couldn't walk in and plead their case. They couldn't argue with the government. But John says, I see a door standing open in heaven. When I was a student at Alabama Christian College uh, back in 1900, none of your business, when I was a student there, uh, several of us were involved in what we call student government, and we went out and helped a man campaign for the governor's office of the state of Alabama. And he ran on what he called an open-door policy. And he said, if I'm elected governor of the state of Alabama, I'll take the door off the hinges to the governor's office. Well, guess what? He got elected. And guess what? He took the door off the hinges. He invited the students who helped him to come down for a, uh, to get our picture made standing behind the governor's office. And we did. And you know what? You could walk right through his door. The door, he had literally taken the door off the hinges to the governor's office. Now, what they didn't tell you was there were about 11 other doors you had to get through before you could get to that door. And they were all barred, and some of them had armed guards standing beside them. But if you could get through those, you could walk into his door. No armed guards at this door. This door is wide open. And, and John says, I saw this door. And then John says, if you'll notice the first voice which I had heard, that would be the voice of Jesus that sounded like thunder. The first voice that I had heard said to me, come up here and I'll show you what things must take place after these things. The voice said, John, come on in. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, the throne room of God, if you're a child of God, is the door is always open. And God always says, come on in. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, whatever you're dealing with in your life, whatever you're going through in your family, whatever you're dealing with in your spiritual walk with God, the door to heaven is always open and you can always walk right up to the throne of God. Hebrews chapter four is a reminder because it tells us that we can come boldly before the throne of grace and that we might find comfort and help in our time of need. Listen, whatever need you have in your life, if you're a child of God, you can confidently walk right up to the throne of God and you can talk to the Father himself. That's why Paul would write, you need to pray without ceasing. That's why he would write, in all things give thanks. That's why uh, he would say in Hebrews chapter 4, come, the writer would say, come boldly before the throne of grace. He had already said the reason for that is because we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens and he's at the right hand of God. That is Jesus Christ, our Savior. And the voice says, John, 
come on in. And then verse 2 says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven. Now, the first thing that John sees after he walks through the door, remember, he says, I saw, uh, I saw, because he was told to write what he sees, and the first thing that he sees is this throne in heaven. I don't know a lot about this throne, but there's some helps that we can get. I would suggest to you that it was a massive throne, that it is the centerpiece of heaven, and that everything in heaven is focused around that throne. Everything in heaven has its proximity to that throne. And John says that the the voice said, come on in. And John said, I I saw this throne in heaven. And it says it was sitting in heaven. Some Bibles say it was seated in heaven. It was standing in heaven. Um, The word, either word that is translated is the word uh, kimai. And it is a word that's uh, used a number of times in the scriptures, in the New Testament. And part of the meaning of the word is something that is buried. And the Greeks used it to refer to a child that had been laid in the ground who was buried in the ground. The idea is it was planted there and it cannot be moved. Why is that significant? Because the throne in heaven is planted and it cannot be moved. In our world, governments come and go. We live in a country where we change presidents every four years. And I don't know how you feel about that, but I'm mostly glad about that. Uh, Governments change. But the government of heaven is always the same. And whenever you walk into the throne room of God, God is always on the throne. And he says there was one who was sitting on that throne. And you know who that was? The one sitting on the throne was God himself. The God who created heaven and earth. The God who created every human being. The God who formed um, man from the dust of the ground. The God who put man to sleep and took the rib from the side of man and fashion a woman. And I have a friend who says, when God took the rib from the man, it must have been the prime rib. This is the God who is sitting on the throne. And what I want you to see in the rest of Revelation chapter 4 is that everything in heaven is focused on the throne. It's not because it's a throne, but it is because of the one who is sitting on the throne. Everything in heaven has its proximity to the throne. Everything in heaven is focused. Everything, every creature. We'll talk about the creatures. Every being, every person, every object and being and person in heaven is focused on the throne of God. Look with me at the text. Beginning in verse 2 down through about verse 11, there are 11 through the end of the book or chapter, there are 11 different prepositions. And all of these prepositions uh, have a relationship to the throne. A preposition, of course, is just a, a word that, uh, that is governed by a noun. And the noun that governs all of these prepositions that help describe uh, the proximity of all, uh, the noun that governs them all is the word throne itself. So let's notice uh, verse 2. There was one who was sitting on the throne. Look at verse 3. He was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne. Like an emerald in appearance. Look at verse 4. Around the thrones were 24 thrones. And upon those thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments. They had golden crowns on their heads. Look at verse 5. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Verse 6. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in the front and in and behind. Go down to verse 10. Twenty-four elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne. 
And they will worship him who lives forever and ever. And they will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord our God. Eleven different times, John is painting a picture of, of something that he sees in heaven. It, it is an object, it is a, a, a being, it is a creature, it is a person, and everything in heaven is focused on the one who is sitting on the throne. Every heart, every object, every being is focused on God. And the clear message for us is that in our lives, when we are burdened and when our lives are in trouble, and when we feel like that Satan is turning up the heat, and when we're going through the most difficult days of our life, and even when we are going through good times in our life, and everything seems to just be moving along for the very best for us, our hearts and our lives and our minds must be fully focused on God. Because as we said at the beginning of the message this morning, while we believe that the preacher who is proclaiming the Word of God understands that this is a sovereign charge that we've been given, and it is a moment of great solemnity, the fact is that it's not just about the preacher, but every child of God must be focused on Him. Everything about our lives, everything about the work that we do, everything about our social life, everything about the way that we carry ourselves, everything about the way that we speak, everything about the entirety of our life must be focused on the one who is sitting on the throne. We must keep our minds and our hearts and our lives fully focused on God. Just to give you some glimpses of what is going on in chapter 4, notice again verse 4, around this throne, this massive throne that is the centerpiece of heaven that arrested John's attention the moment he walked through that door. There are 24 other thrones. We believe they would be smaller thrones. They would be subordinate thrones. And on those thrones are sitting 24 elders. And if you want to do an interesting study and have actually a little bit of enjoyment out of it because some of them are quite humorous, go look at some commentaries about who those 24 elders are. It's uh, rather uh, humorous sometimes. A lot of scholars believe that there are 12 that represent the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob, or, or 12 prophets or writers of the Old Testament. And of course, with that in mind, the other 12 have to be the apostles, right? Or the writers of the New Testament and other New Testament worthies. The only problem with both of those is, or any of those, is that John doesn't tell us who they are. And so your guess is just as good as any biblical scholar who studied the Greek language all of his life because John doesn't tell us who they are. But he does tell us one thing, and I've often wondered, what if these people on these thrones are exactly who John says they are? What if they're elders? What if they're men who have given their life to, to shepherd the flock and to feed the flock of God? And they're given a place of prominence in heaven. And all of these elders, have, uh, they're clothed in white garments. And they have golden crowns on their heads. And uh, if you get down to verse 10, he talks about these 24 elders. And by the way, tonight at 5 o'clock, we're going to look at an, another side of the picture in chapter 5 where one of these elders gets up off his throne. It's an interesting study that we'll notice. But in chapter 4, verse 10, he says the 24 elders uh, will fall down before him. Apparently, based upon uh, where the text says in chapter 4 uh, about the sea... Uh, that is standing there in heaven, verse 5, the sea of glass. Uh, by the way, the, the word the, sea in, uh, in the book of Revelation, the word thalassa occurs about 24 different times in the book. And uh, uh, 
sometimes it, is a, it speaks of the seas that are on the earth, and sometimes it speaks of this sea that is in heaven. And three different times in the book of Revelation, uh, the, the idea of the sea uh, is uh, a sea that is right before the throne of God. And the first time is this time in Revelation chapter 4, uh, where he says that the, the sea is before the throne. And apparently uh, the sea stands between the people and the creatures of heaven and uh, between them and between God is the sea. And then when you get to chapter 15 that we read this morning in the, uh, before the worship began, chapter 15 says that the people uh, were literally standing on the sea. They're standing on the sea. So they're behind the sea in chapter 4. They're standing on the sea in chapter 15. And by the time you get to the end of the book, chapter 22, you know what the Bible says? The sea was no more. The closer you get to God, there's nothing between you and God. And so these men uh, get up off their thrones, as it were, and they walk into the presence of God. And I love verse 10 says, that they'll worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before him. They've been given, remember back in verse 4, these golden crowns that they've been placed on their heads. The crowns are what the Greeks called the Stephanos crown. In the pre-Olympic games before that we have, like the ones we have today, you know today, if you win a race or an event in the Olympic Games. They give you a, a ribbon and a medal you wrap around your neck. In those days, they gave them a crown that was made with, with bushes, with a bush or a leaves or something like that, and they put it on their heads. This is a crown of victory, the Stephanos crown, they called it, the book, the crown of victory, and they placed them on their heads. But they understand that they're not there because of anything great that they have done. And as they approach the throne of God, verse 10 says, they take those crowns off their heads and they cast them before the Lord. Well, of course they do. Why? They know what Paul meant when he wrote in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Thanks be unto God who gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And when we understand that it's not because of who we are, how great we are, but it's because of what God has done for us. We also will take those crowns and we will cast them before the Lord and we will bow down before Him and we will worship Him forever and ever and ever. If you want to know what heaven is about, I know that some of the objects and some of the creatures in chapter 4 and 5 uh, are not uh, physical. Uh, they are metaphorical, as it were, in a sense. But here's what you can know that is certain about Revelation chapter 4. That is that every being, every creature, everything in heaven bows before God and they will worship Him night and day forever and ever because He is worthy to receive glory and honor. And if we are going to worship God in eternity, we certainly must bow before Him because if we do not bow before Him on this earth, every knee will bow before Him in heaven. John goes on to tell us that uh, there are these four living creatures. If you look at verse 6, uh, in the center and around the throne, they have eyes that are full of uh, in the front and in behind. I don't know everything about these creatures. He says in verse 8 that they had six wings and they have eyes that are uh, around and within and they're again crying out. They're reminiscent of the angels, the uh, the seraphim, uh, 
the covering angels. Remember in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah goes into the most holy of holies in the presence of God, and he sees these covering angels, and Isaiah says, uh, Woe is me, I'm not worthy to be here. And then he talks about these angels, and the text says that they had six wings. And with two they covered their face, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And I believe these are the creatures that John sees in heaven. And what are they doing? They're worshiping God. Notice with me verse 8. They cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Holy, holy, holy. In the scriptures, oftentimes words are used more than one time to emphasize the importance of that word. An example would be, Sometimes Jesus would be talking to his disciples and he would say, truly, I say to you. Uh, the old King James Bible says, verily, I say unto you. Occasionally Jesus will say, verily, verily, or truly, truly. That's putting greater emphasis on what he's going to say. I don't know of another word that is used in Scripture that is used back to back to back three times in the way that this is used. Holy, holy, holy. And why did they use the word holy to describe God? I mean, there are many words that describe God. There are many attributes of God. You, you know about the attributes of God. There are really two different types of attributes. There are, first of all, what we call the, the non-moral attributes of God. And you know what those are. We talk about the omnipresence of God. It means God is everywhere. We talk about the omniscience of God. It means God is all-knowing. We talk about the omnipotence of God. That means God is all-powerful. We talk about the immutability of God. That means God never changes. Those are attributes of God. And we say that they're non-moral because no human being will ever attain those attributes. Uh, nobody is omnipresent. Now, when I was a kid, I thought my mother was omnipresent. Uh, I remember the first time I got in trouble in school in the second grade. The first time and many times, by the way. Uh, I got home that day and my mother said to me, how was school today? And I said, it was great. And my mother said, how did things go at the principal's office? And I said, how did you know I was at the principal's office? And she said, I have eyes everywhere. I thought my mother was, you know, kind of omnipresent. Uh, nobody is um, uh, omni omnipotent. Nobody's all-powerful. We taught our children to sing a song, My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. There's nothing that our God cannot do. Nobody is omniscient. You hear the word science in that word? It means to know. Nobody knows everything. I don't know about you, but I, I've met some people in my life who thought they were omniscient. They acted like they thought they knew everything, but nobody is omniscient because those are non-moral attributes of God and we'll never attain those. But then there are some attributes of God that are what we call the moral attributes of God. Those are attributes that, that any human being can, can have in their life and, and not only can they have them, but they can develop them more. For instance, the Bible tells us in John more than one occasion, God is love. It's a, one of the definitions of God. God is love. And, and listen, friends, nobody ever has loved you like God loves you. There's, there's no person who, who will ever love you the way that God does because God is, by definition, love. 
and, and we need to be more loving because we want to be like God. And John said, we love him because he first loved us. And Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And Jesus said, here's how all men will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. We need to work on loving each other more and, and loving God more. The Bible says that, that God is long-suffering. It means he's patient. I don't know about you, but I confess that's a problem I need to work on in my life. I need to gain more patience, particularly if I'm driving down I-35 in the middle of Dallas on certain days. I, I need more patience. I want to yell at everybody else because, you know, they're all bad drivers except me. Uh, I heard about a, a woman who called her husband one day. He was on his way home from work, and she said, be careful out there. They just reported on the news that there's a man going down the interstate the wrong direction. He said, oh, no, honey, there's thousands of them. Uh, sometimes we need to develop more patience. I need to be more patient. And God, aren't you glad God is long-suffering? Peter says, he's long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is kind. We need to be more kind. God is um, comforting. Paul would tell us that he is the God of all comfort. And he comforts us so that we can comfort other people when, when, with the same comfort that we receive from him. And so we need to be more comforting. And then the Bible says that God is holy. And we're told that we need to try to be holy like God is holy. And while we'll never reach that level of holiness in this life, we're to continue to try to grow to become more like Him. And the more we look at God and the more we listen to God and the more we love God, the more holy we will become. That word holy is the word that means uh, set apart. It's an idea of otherness, not like other people. God is not like anyone else. And when we become more holy like God, we'll be less like people of the world and we'll be more like Him. So they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. Does it mean that they're, they're trying to emphasize the holiness of God? Perhaps, or it could mean that they're trying, uh, it is uh, an, uh, an inclining scale. Holy, holier, holiest. God is the holiest being in all of the universe. And we need to try to become more holy. And they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And they're worshiping him all the time. And so in heaven, the clock on the wall always says 9 a.m. Sunday morning. Because they're always worshiping him. And our lives must be lived giving glory to him. And we must be more focused on him. And the more we're focused on God, the less we'll be focused on the world. Paul wrote in Colossians 3 verses 1 and 2 and he said, Don't set your affections on things of this earth but you set your affections on things above. And one of the biggest issues that we have as children of God is that we set our affections on things of this earth. We love the things of this earth. We get comfortable with the things of this earth. We seem to love that more than we do God. But the more we focus on Him, the more we focus on Him, the more we focus on Him, the less we'll be focused on this earth. The songwriter wrote these words, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, Look full at his wonderful face. Now listen to this line. Then the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The more we focus on him, the less we'll focus on the earth. The more we focus on him, the more kind we will be, the more comforting we'll be, the more patient we'll be, the more loving we'll be. 
the more godly we will be, we'll, we'll act less like the people who live around us and, and more like the heart of God. May God help us to realize that, that in heaven, everything, every being, every object, every creature is focused on God. And may He help all of us, not only individually, but collectively as a church, to focus our lives on Him. Sometimes, occasionally, I go to a church and I hear people arguing. And sometimes people will complain about the kind of songs that are sung or, or they don't like certain types of songs or I like these types of songs or, or I don't like the way the preacher preaches or I don't like how long the preacher preaches or I don't think he preaches long enough and, and I think we, we've got our hearts focused on the wrong thing. Imagine if everybody just in this church, every time you came together to worship God, that every person was focused fully on God if every person was focused fully on God, you couldn't do it wrong. Because every, every heart would be in tune with the heart of God. And that can only happen, my friends. It can only happen if our hearts are in tune with God Monday through Saturday. It can't just be a one time a week exercise. If it's only one time a week, it will be an exercise in futility. But if our heart and our minds and our lives are focused on God all the time, when you come together every Sunday, it would radically transform not just the life of this church, but every person who came into this building would be like those who came into the worship at Corinth and they would walk out and they would say, what a great God we serve. May I challenge you today. May I encourage you to consider this week what it means to have your heart completely focused and in tune with God? Will you spend more time in prayer talking to Him? Will you spend more time listening to Him as you open His Word? Will you spend more time trying to, to get your mind off of the things of this earth and get your mind on Him? It'll make your life so much richer, and it'll make heaven so much sweeter. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, if your heart is not in tune with God today, we want to encourage you through the song that we will sing to give your life to Jesus Christ. If you believe that Jesus really is the Son of God, if you will give Him your life, that means you'll repent, you'll turn your life over to Him. You quit being in control yourself, but turn your life over to Him. If you will confess His name before those who are present and be immersed with Him in baptism, He'll wash away all of your sins. He'll write your name in the Lamb's book of life, and He'll put you on your road to glory, and He'll add you to His church. If we can help you in any way, if you need prayers of this church family, Maybe your mind and your heart have been out of kilter because you've not been thinking about God. If we can help you, if we can pray for you, if you have any needs, we invite you to come while we stand together and while we sing this song.